So last Sunday afternoon, in a small town in Wisconsin, Menasha, Wisconsin, Joe Stoffel and his wife Erin were out taking a walk with their three kids, not realizing that a 27-year-old former Air Force corpsman who had just recently broke off an engagement and who had been in a horrible fight that day with his former fiancée had entered the park with a gun planning to take his life and anyone else that he saw on the way there. And as Joe and Aaron and their family were coming out of the park and this 27-year-old man was going into the park with a gun and he opened fire, Joe Stoffel was hit and he was killed. Uh, Joe and Aaron's 11-year-old son was shot and killed and Aaron was shot three times. But somehow in the midst of all the chaos, after having been shot three times, she was able to get her 7-year-old son Ezra, her 5-year-old daughter Selah, she was able to get them through the trees and out of the park and get her seven-year-old son to a place where she could direct him to go call for help, which he was able to do. An ambulance arrived, and she was able to live through this ordeal. After several hours of surgery to stop the bleeding and remove the bullets and make sure mom's life was going to be okay, her doctor spoke about the occasion. And this is what he said this week about this mother, Erin Stoffel, who saved the life of her two young children and maybe many more by her heroic actions last Sunday evening. The doctor said you can never underestimate the power of a mother to protect her children. To have three gunshot wounds and to be able to get out of that park And to save two of her children is incredible to think about. It's an amazing story of heroism on her part. For me to try to speak on mothering or to talk about how to be a great mother or to try to present well the power of a mother in someone's life is probably, it's probably not something I can adequately do as a father. But to all the mothers today who have heroically went to bed too late, got up too early, spent way too much time dealing with all our stuff, managed the kids, managed the husbands, managed the life, managed the pets, managed the trips and the activities and all the household and everything else, today we say thank you and I hope today is a blessed day. Whatever you want to do, I hope you get to do today. Um, And I, I only apologize that you only have one of these days a year, but I pray that Mother's Day is special for you. And I wanna show you a mother in scripture today that I think gives us some great, great advice on how to, as parents, as coaches, as teachers, uh, as educators, if you're in this room and you have influence over anyone under the age of 18 in any capacity that you hope someday has a connection to God, there's a mother in scripture named Hannah that I want to show you today because I believe in learning Hannah's story, we can learn some valuable principles about how to influence the young people in our life in a way that allows them to connect to God in a powerful way. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, you can maybe dial it up on your phone or your tablet. It'll be on the screen behind me, so you'll be able to read it as I read it. But if you actually want a paper Bible in your hands, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They've got Bibles you can use today if you forgot yours. They've got Bibles you can have today if you, if you don't have a Bible and want one, just wave at our ushers. We've given away more than 800 Bibles since our church began, just like this. People forget one or need one on a Sunday. They take it, take it home, start reading it, um, and it becomes theirs. So if you need one, just put your name in it. This is yours, uh, our gift to you. And in 1 Samuel, we enter two books of the Bible, First and Second Samuel, written about the life of one of the godliest men who ever lived. But like with all men and women who ever lived, Samuel's story begins with his mom. And all of our stories begin with our mom. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, before we learn about Samuel, we learn about his mom 
and we see some great things about the faith of his mother. Here's what 1 Samuel 1 says. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. I'm glad that verse is over. <laughs> verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah. The other was Penaniah. Penaniah had children. Hannah had none. And year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he'd give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and because the Lord had closed her womb. She'd not been able to have children up to this point. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and she wouldn't eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And all of us who are married with kids know that no, husbands do not mean more than sons and daughters, unfortunately. It's, it's just something I've learned. Verse 9. Once... When they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That was called a Nazarite vow. It's what Samson took where he didn't cut his hair. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. So Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away the wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Verse 18, she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and they worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I'll take him and present him to the Lord. I'll present him before the Lord and he'll live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good of his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until after she'd weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, and he put a flower skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he'll be given over to the Lord. And he, meaning Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Now, there is so much to learn from the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But what we see being kind of the main idea, the, the big point, the big idea of 1 Samuel chapter 1 is how we can learn as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, uh, as anyone who has influence over young people who would like to see them connected to God in a powerful way, we learn from Hannah how to present our children to the Lord. We learn from Hannah how to take someone we're leading 
and how to present them to God so that God can lead them because we hope, I would figure, that God can lead them better than we can. But Hannah's story teaches us how to do that. And here's the first thing we learn. If you haven't already grabbed your outline, grab the outline out of your bulletin and and hold it in your hand so you can follow along. I, I tell people there's two great reasons to have an outline. One, if you like to take notes and remember so you can look at it later, the outline will help you do that. Secondly, if your mom made you come to church today and you're wondering when is it gonna be over, if you follow the outline, you'll know when we're almost done. So either way, it's a win for you. Follow the outline and we'll go together. Here's what we learn from Hannah as we begin. How do we present our children to the Lord? Here's what you need to know. The spiritual life of your children is often birthed in your spiritual struggles. It's the things that make you who you are spiritually that set the foundation for who your children will become spiritually. Look at verses 10 and 11. We see this deep anguish is what scripture says in Hannah's heart. We see a spiritual struggle that results in a spiritual moment that results in her leading her child spiritually. It says in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Listen, if you're a parent today, or if you're an adult who has influence over teenagers, you need to understand what you've been through spiritually is the foundation for how you're going to lead spiritually. And there are three great questions to ask yourself as a mother, as a father, as a grandparent, as somebody who's leading teenagers or children. Number one, do the children in your life know your spiritual story? Do they know who you are and how God made you and why you love Jesus the way you do and why you lead the way you do and why you make the decisions you make and why you believe the things you believe? Do your children know your story spiritually? In Exodus chapter 13, God said you're to consecrate your children before the Lord. And he said every year on a certain day, you're to remind your children that they've been given over to the Lord. And in Exodus 13, 8, he said, here's what you need to do every day on this day every year on this day when you remind your children that they're gods you need to tell your son exodus 13 8 i do this because of what the lord did for me when i came out of egypt see scripture says as we give our children to the lord and we try to help our kids understand who god is and as we try to help our children understand how to connect to jesus moses says if you're going to help your kids understand how to connect to jesus you need to tell them why that's important to you and what god did in your life to help you connect to Jesus. So we're big at our church about telling stories, about learning how to tell our story through the lens of what Jesus has done in us because we believe stories have impact. We believe everyone has a story, everyone's story is unique, and everyone's story has impact. So we wanna share with you today the story of one of the mothers in our church named Emily. Emily's husband, Jeremy Dahmer, is one of our elders. They were one of the founding five couples of our church years ago. And as Emily shares her story, which you're going to hear today, and one day our kids are going to be old enough to hear. What Jeremy and Emily have gone through as a couple, the struggle that they have gone through as a couple, has birthed the spiritual foundation of who their children will become. Once a month, we're trying to introduce you to leaders of our church through their stories. So today, enjoy Emily's story. I grew up in Lee Summit until I was in third grade. I remember going to church camp this summer before third grade and felt a stirring in my heart that it was time for me to go forward and I was saved that day. Um, After that, 
It was a Sunday where people were being baptized at church and I just really felt strongly that it was time for me to be baptized as well. We went to public high school and I just really prioritized. I was actively involved in Young Life and lots of Bible studies. My faith was hugely important to my life until my senior year. I decided to try a different lifestyle. I wanted to do what all my friends were doing and not be isolated, so I just um, started partying. At that time, Church was not a priority, but I do remember when I came home from college, I would go to church with my parents just because I kind of felt like I had to. And every time I went, I would just cry and cry and cry. I just felt um, so empty and sad and alone and just knew what I was missing and struggled to find a way to get back to that. I finally just couldn't do it anymore. I knew something had to change. Um, I needed to surround myself with people who would encourage that change. And um, about that time, I came home from college at Thanksgiving and went to a party with a friend that I went to Christian school with in elementary school and ran into Jeremy, who was a, a mutual friend that we both knew. I had known him for years in the past and hadn't seen him for a long time. Um, and quickly, we struck up a relationship. I saw something in Jeremy that I just knew that I so desperately needed. He had the strength to say no in areas that I was not saying no. And um, I just feel like God brought him into my life to be my partner and to hold me accountable and help me move forward in my relationship with Christ at that time. So 2006, we get married. We're uh, both young, ambitious, involved in our careers, having a great time together. I own my own business, I'm in construction, and I was unpaid large amounts of money and completed contracts. Work, I'd fulfilled all my obligations. While we're still kind of at the bottom, so we think, the uh, check my mail one day and we're getting sued personally, Emily and I are getting sued personally um, by somebody out of state for some work that we had both done and neither were paid on. During this time of trials when we were trying to figure out financially how in the world we were going to survive, we also had decided that it was time to start trying to have a family. And so um, I just had this feeling like even though maybe we weren't quite ready, we needed to try. And we did and I got pregnant really quickly and miscarried really quickly as well. Um, that was a really difficult time compounded with everything else that was so hard at that time financially, um, but we didn't really know we needed to be scared of anything at that time and just kept trying to get pregnant. So about a year went by and nothing happened. I had gotten pregnant so quickly the first time that we just were shocked that it was taking so long the second time um, and eventually ended up seeing the doctor and eventually were referred to specialist. We were financially devastated and yet the money came and so we were able to pay for the procedure. Um, that was a very difficult few months. I was poked and prodded. I can't even count how many shots I was taking every day. My body just felt like a battleground. It was painful and stressful. Um, it was an agonizing couple of months. At the end of the process, though, I did get pregnant, and um, we were just ecstatic. But um, I then miscarried pretty quickly. My IVF miscarriage happened in October, and Jeremy and I were just so devastated, um, we just needed a break. So we stopped even pursuing any sort of pregnancy procedures or anything for several months. Um, it was March of the following year, which would have been 2011, and we were at 
taught in Vanessa Higgins' house um, for a meeting for the very early stages of JCI. And actually, Jason and Michelle Cummings were being introduced to all of us. I remember Danielle, in a moment of boldness, just stepped forward and asked everyone, asked Jeremy and I to sit down and for everyone to lay hands on us and pray. And we've never experienced that before. We weren't used to needing prayer or needing to be the recipients of that and just um, the power and the fellowship of believers and in their prayer was such an impacting moment in our life. I always believed in the power of prayer, but after having been prayed over like that and just the sense of peace that we had and the ability that we had to kind of let go emotionally after that and just knowing there were so many people who had been through similar situations and also who were just praying for us and supporting us, that was so impacting in our life. We'll never forget that. We were prayed over in March of 2011, and Peyton was born the following January. So we were pregnant very quickly after that prayer meeting. Um, and Peyton was born in January of 2012, and just 18 months later to the day, Macy came along and joined our family as well. Our dependence on the Father at that time just showed us how all in we really were. God was our refuge and our strength and we never would have made it through those times without Him. Something I know about my story and our story is that it's ever changing. Um, we just, God has brought us through so many things and our story continues to evolve even today. And we're just so excited to see where God takes us next. Thank you for, uh, for sharing your story. Who we are spiritually is birthed in the struggles that we've come through. And if the spiritual struggles create in us a person that we can pass on, a foundation spiritually that we can pass on to our kids, we might look back at things and say, you know what, I would never choose to do anything. I, I would never choose to go through what I went through, but I wouldn't change it either. Because it's really created someone in me that I think can help me lead my kids. You know, when the leaders of our church get together, and we've got a bunch of people in a room like we did last week at Paradise Park. You've got to realize the only thing that makes any of us different is Jesus. I mean, when you look at the go-kart track last week at Paradise Park, you, you, you had addicts. You had people who'd been abused. You had people who had no spiritual connection before they came here. You had people who'd struggled with drugs and alcohol. People who'd been in and out of jail. Cancer survivors and those who have lost very close family members. Overcomers of tragedy. People who used to, used to be atheists and now follow Jesus. And what's the one thing in common? Some struggle in their life produced a moment of faith that produced a follower of Jesus. And Hannah's spiritual struggles led to the foundation that she would lead her children with. Secondly, do your children understand the depth of your faith? Do you ever talk to your children about why you love Jesus and how you're following Jesus? Because scripture says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So love him deeply. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Moses didn't say follow him wholeheartedly. He didn't say go to church. As soon as Moses said follow, he said follow God with everything you have. And make sure your kids know about that. That's the order that he gives. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Do your children understand the depth of your faith? Because they might not understand faith until they understand your faith. And then thirdly, do your children see your faith in action? Could your children understand how to follow Jesus just by watching you follow Jesus? 
You know, my dad was the spiritual head of our home. One of the greatest men of God that, that I, to this day, have ever met. He was my best man in my wedding. He, he remains my very best friend. My dad was the spiritual head of our home, but my mom was the spiritual heart of our home. I learned what a daily walk with Jesus looked like by watching my mom. It was my mom who I always saw reading her Bible. It was my mom who I always saw praying on her knees. It was my mom who I always saw teaching Sunday school and, make, and, and getting us ready for church. It was my mom whose journal used to lay open on her nightstand and I would sneak into her room and read it to see if she had found out what I'd done the night before sometimes and how she was talking to the Lord about me. It was my mom who really showed me what faith looked like. And some of you moms sit in here today on Mother's Day and you think, you know, I'm just waiting for my husband to lead. Listen, just lead. Just lead. Be the spiritual heart of your family. Just lead for your children's sake spiritually and recognize that your child's faith is attached to yours. So be sure you stay attached to Jesus. If you can picture a parent at the top of a cliff trying to help their child repel down the cliff of life, if that parent at the top of the cliff is not connected to anything behind him, both of you are going to go down together. But if a parent will remain deeply connected to Jesus and their child remains deeply connected to them, there's going to be a DNA and culture of faith that just works well. So I want to challenge you today. Let your spiritual struggles produce in you a spiritual foundation to lead the people you're leading with. Secondly, I want to challenge you to do something that took me a very long time to learn how to do. I want to challenge you through the lens of Hannah, who we've met this morning, to trust your children with God. Because we see this incredible moment in the life of Hannah where she prays her entire life that she'll have a child and then she finally has a child and then she just gives him to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 it says when Hannah's husband Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill his vow Hannah did not go she said to her husband after the boy is weaned I'll take him and present him before the Lord and he'll live there always I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give him to God I'm gonna give my son to God let me ask you a question have you given your kids to God because I struggle to do that as a, as a dad as a preacher, as a Christian. You can call me whatever you want. I struggle to do that. And this struggle became real in, in my heart a few years ago. I realized the massive gap I had in faith and trusting God with my children. And I'm going to give you kind of a morbid statement that I don't mean to be morbid, but I had, I had to work to this point before I could do number two as a dad. I stand here today, and I, I say this from time to time, and Daniel says, don't say that, it's weird. But I truly mean, I stand here today at 37 and I'm ready to die not sick uh, I don't think I'm dying I hope I'm not dying um, but I'm, I'm not afraid of death and I, I would be okay to die and go to Jesus I, I've reached a point in my life where I try to really live for Jesus um, but to live with Jesus would, would be better for, for me personally um, now I, there are ways I don't want to die I've got some irrational fears about eat, being eaten by animals like a shark and a bear I worry about that from time to time I worry about an airplane crash. I just think those, that'd be a those three ways would take a little longer to die. If you ever hear that I died in one of those three ways, you should feel sorry for me. That, that would have been a rough five minutes. Um, but I, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm to the point where I'm at peace with a lot of things in my life. And I'll tell you how I got there. I, I had to take a mission trip several years ago um, that was going to take me to Dubai for a day. And that was going to take me to Jordan for a day. And those were both places that were pretty, pretty hot zones for Westerners at the time. 
And I had to kind of process, man, what if I leave and never come back? And Danielle and I had gotten to a point in our marriage where, you know, and I, I love Danielle with all my heart, but I, I was kind of okay leaving her. I knew, she, I knew she would be okay. I thought, you know, if I die, my wife's going to be fine. She got a life insurance policy. She's probably going to buy a bunch of new stuff. Um, I, you know, we actually, we've even discussed, I said, listen, I want you to get married again. I've kind of given her a list of people that I'd be okay with. Um, <laughs> they're all a little less better looking than me just because, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to still be at the top of the food chain. Um, but, you know, I've said, you know, these, these people, by the way, none of you go to our church. Like, if someone from our church tried to move in on my widow, like, I, I would haunt you. Like, the bumps in the night. That would be me. Just look out. Just don't, don't do that. I got friends and they don't do that. Um, but I've given her a list. I don't think we're ready for that yet, although we had a very odd conversation yesterday. We were eating lunch with Casey. Casey had been at her friend's house all day long. I said, did you have fun yesterday, Casey? Yeah. And I said, what'd you guys do? And she said, we played American Girl Dolls. I said, what it like, that's not a video game. That's like actual like dolls. I said, what, is it, what does it mean to play American Girl Dolls? I've never played with dolls. What do you what do? You do? So she starts kind of unpacking this process to me. Well, we, we give them names, and they're our daughters, and it was her and her neighbor, and they each, they each have three different, like, levels or ages or sizes of American Girl dolls, however that works. And she's like, we're their mothers, and they're our children. And I said, well, like, do you, like, do you, do you give yourselves names? Yeah. Are they different every time? Yeah. So well, tell me how it works. So, you know, this one of them got fired from their job, so they kind of moved in together. And she's telling me this story about how they're parenting these kids. I said, time out, time out. Like, where's the dads? Like, who's the, who's the husband in this story? And she's like, Dad, you know, we don't have it. I was like, well, hang on. How, you know, this isn't a Disney channel. There's got to be a dad somewhere. Like, how, how did you, how'd you get there with, without a dad? Where'd the dads go if y'all are living together? She's like, I don't know. She's like, I, you know, I guess in, in our story, the, the dad always dies. <laughs> and Danielle just starts cracking up, laughing. And she says, that, that, is, that is so funny. And I said, how is that funny? That the dad, how is it funny that the dad dies? So perhaps she's got her eye on someone on my list that I've given her, which means I need to update my list. But I've, I've, I've come to grips with Danielle will be, if I die, Danielle's going to be okay. But I worry about my kids. And there's, there's some faith moments I don't step into because I'm worried about my kids. I'm, I'm worried about, I'm worried, worried who I would trust my kids to. And a couple years ago, as I had to process, right, like, I might kiss my kids goodbye, I might, might not come home, um, I began to really struggle spiritually, and it got to the point where God pointed out to me, said, Christian, you don't trust me with your kids, do you? And I said, I don't think so. C- C- Christian, do you, do you trust that I love your kids more than you do? I don't think so. Christian, do you trust that if you were gone, but I was here, that your kids would be okay? God, I don't think so. I realize I do not trust God with my children. I trust me with my children. And God said, Christian, I'll work through you, but you may be the greatest obstacle of me getting to your kids if you won't trust them with me. And I learned that as a Christian, I see what Hannah did here. You have to be willing to give control of your children and their futures to God. However, It would be hypocritical to give God control of your child's life, but not your own. And that's where I realized I was. I wanted to be God in my life. I wanted to be God in my kid's life. And I feared, God, if I was gone, but you were still here, don't know that that'd be good enough for me. And God said, Christian, if I was gone, but you were still here, would that be good enough for you? And I said, all right, I hear you. I hear you. And I will try to learn 
to trust you with my kids. But God, you got to help me. That's a big step of faith for me. Hannah took her son and she said, God, he's yours. I, actually, I think you'll do a better job than I will, God. Take him. So how, how do we trust our children to God? We do number three. We entrust our children to God. We learn to trust God with our children by entrusting our children to God. Look at verses 26 through 28, and we're going to learn some practical steps, and then we'll be done. It says that Hannah took her son to Eli, and she said to Eli, pardon me, my Lord. Been about three years now since they'd had this conversation where he couldn't figure out what was going on. And she said, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he'll be given to the Lord. And he, meaning Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. You know, as a, as a parent, as an influencer of some, somebody young who you want to be connected to God, the greatest thing you can do is continue to bring your child to Jesus so they can make a decision of whether or not they want to stay. Samuel could have left. He chose to stay, thank goodness. But Hannah said, I am going to live my life to keep bringing my child to the Lord. And I believe two of the greatest roles that a Christian parent has are to guide their children and to guard their children. Guide their children to the steps of Jesus as many times as you possibly can to the feet of Jesus and guard your children from the things that are going to get in the way of your children connecting with Jesus in a powerful way. Now, just a few weeks ago, I was talking to a mom in our church, having some struggles with one of her teenagers, and she said, Christian, here's what I feel like I need to do, but it was, it was pretty heavy-handed consequences for something that had happened, but it was needed because her, her teenager was off the rails and, and moving further away. And she said, but I'm, you know, do I have the right to do this? I think her child is 14, 15. Do I, do I have the right to do this? And I looked at her and I said, not only do you have the right to do this, but as a Christian parent, you actually have the responsibility to do this. You don't just have the right. It, it's actually your responsibility. If you don't step in and guide and guard, no one will. Proverbs 22 6 says this start children off in the way that they should go And even when they're old they won't turn from it All we can do as parents is start trying to figure out how to get our kids to jesus and hope when they're older that they stay there So how do we do that? We guide them And we guard them we guide them and we guard them. How do we guide them as christian parents? It's important to guide your children in four areas now. Let me say this some of you are in here and you're not christian parents Here's what I would like you to do during this section. Listen to how Christians view parenting through the lens of Scripture. If you're not a Christian parent, this might not be for you. You might just be here because your mom said, if you don't come to church, I'm not taking you to the buffet. You're going to have to pay for yourself. So you say, okay, I'll go to church. If you're not a Christian parent, I'm glad that you're here. These are not forced upon you, but I want you to maybe understand Christian parents a little better through the lens of Scripture. So as a Christian parent, it's important to guide your children, number one, to strong Christian values. We just have to help our, our kids and those that we have influence over really understand as a Christian the things that are important to us. And you know, some of, the thing, some, of my, some of my core Christian values might be a little different than yours or we might rank them differently. I would challenge you as a Christian family to maybe go make a Ten Commandments of your household 
What, what are the ten commandments of what it means to be a Christian with your last name? What are, what are the ten things? Because no, none of us are going to have perfect Christian families, not even close. But what are the ten things we're going to get right more than we get them wrong? What, what are the things that when your kids are off and they leave the house, you want them to do forever and ever and ever? You just want it sunk deep in their DNA. You are responsible to shape those in your children. You can't shape a perfect child, but you can shape values, strong Christian values where we say, hey, you are a Christian, your last name is this. This is what that means for you. Guide your children to strong Christian values. I asked Danielle this week, because we do not have this yet. God gave me this idea for this message, but as I was looking, I thought, that's pretty good. And I told Danielle, what do you think would be our top 10? Like, top 10 things we want our kids to leave our house. Well, we've started discussing what those are. We're, we're going to try to put those together. Number two, as a Christian parent, it's important to guide your children as many times as possible to church. This is what Hannah said. She said, I'm going to bring my son to God as many times as I can. Maybe he'll stick, maybe he won't. But I'm going to get him there a bunch. None of us can make our kids love Jesus. None of us can make our kids even believe in God. Some of us have family members. Some of you have children that are atheists. It's just, it's not connected and that's, that's not your fault. But we can keep bringing our kids to Jesus. We can't make them love him, but we can allow them to get to know him. And hopefully at some point, there's a moment where it sticks. Come to church together, sit together, worship together, bring your Bibles together. Let your kids see you take notes so they understand how learning works. Develop a culture of, hey, we do church and this is what church looks like for our family. This summer, we've got an unbelievable ministry planned for children and students. Get your children to those events so they can develop this culture. Number three, as a Christian parent, it's important to guide your children to high-impact spiritual events. Most adult Christians that I know, their story is shaped by less than five critical moments in their past. You heard in Jeremy and Emily's video, they mention two or three. It's usually not coming to church every Sunday of your life that impacts you so deeply or going to a small group for a semester that impacts you deeply. There's a moment at a youth camp, at a mission trip. There's a moment serving. There's, there's a God moment in your life that happens that gives you a new awareness of who God is where God steps in and says, now you, you, we're going to change the direction of your life. We can't force those God moments. But we can figure out where those God moments happen and we can force our children there and hope that they happen there. These are things like youth camps, retreats, mission trips. All you and I can do is move our children to those God moment events and pray that God does something. Listen, some of you this year are not sending your kids to youth camp because they got a summer job or they got summer school or they got a sports practice or because you, you don't want to pay $100 or a couple hundred dollars, however much it costs, and you're missing what could be one of the greatest events of your student's life where, where you could, you can't make God move, but you can move your teenager to a place where God is moving. And you can say, okay, God, and if you don't do it this year, I'll send them again next year. And God, I've got them till I'm 18, and they're going to go on mission trips into youth camps, and I just pray something connects. I can't make it connect, but like Hannah, I can bring them every year and set them there and say, you're going to do this for four or five days, and just see what happens. Our job is to move them to high-impact spiritual events. Number four, as a Christian parent, it's important to guide your children to children's and student-specific ministries where they can meet other Christian friends that are their age. 
Maybe this is children's church. Maybe this is vacation Bible school. Maybe this is youth group. I grew up in such a small church, we didn't have youth group. So for me, it was fellowship of Christian athletes. Maybe it's Young Life. Maybe it's Club 121. Maybe it's campus ministries. For those of you who have college students, when I was a youth pastor, anytime someone left our youth group who was deeply connected to our church, we would find a church in that town. We find a, a ministry on that campus, and we would try on the student's first visit to connect them to a ministry so they had a church home at their college home. Because if you think you're going to leave home at 18, not be in ministry for four years, come back home at 22 and really love Jesus deeply, that ain't happening. It just doesn't work. So we got to find out how to move our children, our students, those we lead to ministry specific events for where they are. Why? Why is this important? Because we don't have a lot of time with them. Last week we did baby dedications for our church on Sunday afternoon. We dedicated four beautiful little babies and Pastor Scott was there and he kind of led that process. And he gave a statistic that I have never heard. And that statistic was this. From birth through graduation of high school, a parent has 936 weeks in their child's life. 936 Mondays, 936 Tuesdays, 936 Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, 936 Sundays. And as I heard that thought, Scott said something like, and if your child is now a teenager, 13, 14, you've got less than a fourth of those to go. If your child is 16, 17, you get probably a seventh or an eighth of those to go. I thought, Lord, as a parent, my job has to be at least 936 times once a week to push my child's chair where they're looking at you face to face. And they may get up and turn around and walk away 935 times. But if at 936 they open their eyes and see Jesus, it's been worth it. I mean, I might have to do it a thousand times, almost a thousand weeks that you have with your child but between when they're born and when they graduate high school. Lord, if I have to a thousand times push their chair in front of you and hope it works, I'll do my job to guide them. And we have to guard them. In Song of Solomon 2, 15, Solomon speaking about guarding a marriage relationship says this to his fiance, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. He said, there's a lot of little things in life. Seem little by themselves, but if, if these little things sneak into your life, they can derail a relationship. So I look at a decade in youth ministry, 15 years in ministry. I just look at all the teenagers I've interacted with, and I see the greatest spiritual threats to our children today. Number one is busyness. It's not sin. It's not evil. It's not the left, it's not the right, it's not a Republican, it's not a Democrat, it's not ISIS, it's not a foreign country. The greatest threat to your children and my children really connecting with Jesus is busyness. Our busyness first, their busyness second. We just think we can run at the pace of life we're running, never get to church on Sunday, never get to youth group, don't have time for camps and mission trips, and at 18, give them a card that has a Bible verse on it, hang Jeremiah 29, 11 in their bathroom when they get married and say, man, God's got a plan for you, God bless you. It doesn't happen that way doesn't happen that way. We're going to miss that connection. So we've got to figure out through busyness how to lead. I believe number two, social media. I believe this is the greatest threat to derailing and integrating the DNA and culture of our kids. And this is not something I dealt with. How many of you like me would have spent more nights in jail than you did if you could video record and take a picture of everything that happened between 13 and 18? Oh my gosh, I'm glad they didn't have that at the places I hung out 
when I was a teenager because I like I would not I would I wouldn't be able to be a pastor like I the, like there'd be recorded evidence of why I could never be a pastor and it'd be on some website somewhere so you could YouTube oh, wow that you I can't go to your church yeah you know I I get to clean up the stories and kind of preach them different because they're not recorded but man this social media world our kids are living in read an article this week online about an all-American track athlete at Penn University Ivy League school Ivy League student beautiful young girl who the second semester of her sophomore year sprinted and jumped off a nine-story parking garage and took her own life and when her friends and her parents really came together to figure out what was really happening in her head the main emphasis of her struggle was she said I don't feel like my real life will ever amount to the Instagram life I see from everyone else they just always seem happier than I do Social media had created a, a, a false world, right? Every picture's filtered. We only put up the good moments. No one ever shows the F they got on the test or the game that they lost or the home run that they allowed to lose the game or the person that said no to the dance that they asked them to or the job that they got fired from. It's only the good stuff. So you have these kids looking at their life through the lens of everyone's bragging, feeling like they don't add up. And then you've got people speaking from vulgarity to everything else. Into, do, do you know what your kids are doing on social media? Not the world we grew up in, but it's a world we've got to begin to learn. I believe media and technology, number three, is just something that's got to be guarded against. We've got to know what's going in our kids' eyes and ears because it will impact their heart. What they see and hear is important. We have to be aware of that. I believe number four, friends and relationships. And yes, I believe this is actually fourth in the list. You put your children with the right group of friends, you don't even have to be a great parent if they've got great friends, and they're, they're going to do okay. You can be the best parent in the world, and they have best friends or a boyfriend or a girlfriend who just does not live for Jesus. Good luck. Once their heart attaches to them, it's going to be real hard to pull them back. We've got to guard against that. And then number five, fun. We've got to guard, we've, we've got to guard against fun. When, if you were to ask me, why do church kids go get in sin? I tell you, it's fun because it's fun. And as parents, we got to realize how to out-fun sin. As a parent, my goal is to spend more money doing more things, having more fun with my kids than they can enjoy on a Friday or Saturday night with their friends. I want them to choose me. I say, listen, you go do that stupid thing, or I'm going to take you, and we're going to do this. I know I've got to out-fun sin in my kid's life so they're more attracted to what God would want them to do than what the world would want them to do. And if you were to ask me a year ago, a year ago today, last Mother's Day, Christian, how are you doing in these nine areas? I'd have said awesome. Because my oldest child was 12 at the time. If you were to ask me today, after a year with a teenager, Christian, how are you doing in these nine areas? If I could be honest with you, struggling. It's much harder to practice than to preach. It's so confusing. So many bad, I, I've made so many bad decisions then I make a great decision that turns out not to be a really good decision. Then I make a bad decision. This is actually kind of okay. And by the time my teenagers are 18, I'll probably never preach on parenting again. Like I'll just say, listen, today's Mother's Day. If you need some ideas on parenting, talk to someone who doesn't have kids. They'll tell you, they'll tell you what to do. I don't have a clue. We're just praying and trusting and guiding and guarding. And every year I have less answers but I won't quit trying to guide and guard. 
And here's what I have decided. Even when there isn't a clear conclusion, we keep having conversations. Even when there's not a clear conclusion, kids miss church to play sports or no? Not really sure, but we're never going to quit talking about that. Just going to monitor it as we go. You let your kids listen to secular music or no? Sometimes, yeah, we, we got dials in our car that are set to that, but we talk about it all the time. You let your kids go to worlds? You let your kids hang out with kids who don't go to church? Yeah, right now I do. Is that the answer forever? I don't know. I, I literally know less today than I have ever known, but I will not stop talking about how to guide my kids, guard my kids, and trust God with my kids. Because that's not just my right, it's my responsibility. Charles Spurgeon's one of the greatest preachers to ever lived. He preached in England in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And here was his take on Proverbs 22.6. I'm going to leave you with it because I think it's awesome. Spurgeon said, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure you're going that way yourself. Train up a child in the way they should go, but be sure you're going that way yourself. You know, if you're in here today and you're not deeply connected to Jesus, Jesus wants to be deeply connected to you. If you're in here today and you hear everything and you think, man, I have failed as a parent, you need to know you need to forgive yourself. You need to know Jesus forgives you and you can start over again. If we go back to the story of John and Aaron Soffel, she shot three times. She went into surgery. She was in a medically induced coma for a few days. I just read this last night when I went to make sure I had all my facts straight on this story. And the story had been updated. When she came to out of her coma, she had a respirator in so she couldn't talk. She asked her sister who was there with her to bring her a pad of paper and a pen. And as she brought her the pad of paper and the pen, she told him she was shot standing over her husband making sure he was going to be okay. It was only once she knew that he was gone that she took her younger two children, got them out of the park, got them to safety, and got herself some help. But she wrote on the pad of paper, the first thing she did when she gained consciousness, she wrote on the paper for her sister-in-law, John's last words were, forgive the shooter. Who thinks like that? I mean, come on. You're laying dying in the park, shot by someone you don't know. Your wife is shot. One of your children has been killed. And your dying words are to tell your wife to forgive someone? Who thinks like that? Only someone who's been so radically impacted by Jesus that forgiveness has become a part of their DNA. And my closing message to you today, and then we'll pray and we'll be done, is if you look at this message today and you say, man, I, Christian, I feel like I failed in all these areas, forgive yourself. That's what Jesus would do. If you, if you think, man, I wish I had just one person in my life who would forgive me for all the boneheaded decisions I've made, Jesus will. He wants to be that friend to you. Or maybe you're in here and you're in round three of what you think might be 15 rounds with your mom or your grandma or your kids. I mean, you got your boxing gloves on and you were holding a grudge and today's going to be another tough day and you're going to fight it out. Maybe, maybe you could pray about just forgiving them. Just forgive them. Just forgive them. And move forward. And I look at the life of Hannah and I'm challenged. I look at presenting my kids to Jesus and I think, Lord, help me do this because it's harder now than ever before and I don't see it getting easier. But I've got a great path and I've got some great advice on how to do it. And I hope you have learned that today as well. Let's pray together.